Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Paul V. Turner, Wattis Professor of Art Emeritus in the Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University. Professor Turner's new book is Frank Lloyd Wright and San Francisco, which explores the complex and surprising relationship between one of America's most iconic and well-known architects and one of America's most iconic and well-known cities. Paul, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I've just said that Wright's relationship with San Francisco is surprising because he's not generally associated with that city compared to, say, Chicago, Los Angeles, Wisconsin, or Arizona. And so there are lots of wonderful little-known stories in your book. Wright did, in fact, work quite a bit in San Francisco and other parts of the Bay Area, though fewer than 10 of the projects he designed there were built. What inspired you to fully research Wright's work in this area, and what do you feel is most significant about this new understanding of his relationship with the Bay Area? Well, you're right, Jessica, that um, most people don't think of San Francisco as um, as a center of uh, of Wright's work. As you say, they think of Chicago and uh, and Wisconsin and Arizona and, and Los Angeles. Um, and in fact, people are uh, surprised when they when they hear how many projects he uh, he designed for the area. Uh, I would uh, sometimes, if I'd mentioned to people that I was writing a book on on Frank Lloyd Wright's work in the Bay Area, a common response I'd get was, uh, "Well, what is there? Uh, there's the Marin County Civic Center, and uh, there's that shop in downtown San Francisco, and a few houses. But is that really enough for a book?" And they were always surprised when. When I'd say that there are close to 30 projects that Wright designed for the for the Bay Area, though um, many of them were not built, but even um, even some Frank Lloyd Wright experts uh, are a bit surprised when they when they hear that it was that many uh, projects. Um, and the other thing that's um, that's interesting about uh, about all of these projects is that they there's an amazing uh, a variety. Uh, a range of different uh, uh, types of buildings or uh, building types. Uh, there are a number of houses, of course, uh, but also uh, that uh, gift shop in San Francisco, a skyscraper that he designed for, for downtown San Francisco, his first skyscraper uh, project of uh, around 1913, uh, the Civic Center, of course, that's in Marin County, uh, the, the post office, which is there, he designed an industrial building for the peninsula, a uh, mortuary complex, uh, a couple of religious buildings, a bridge over the San Francisco Bay, uh, some fair uh, buildings, an amphitheater, and even a doghouse uh, for one of his uh, houses. So it's an amazingly broad um, uh, range of, of building types, and they're of all, and they're remarkable uh, uh, designs, many of these, remarkable buildings. Uh, some of his most innovative and, um, and distinctive designs were done for the Bay Area. So that's what uh, really made me realize that this was, um, that this was a uh, prime subject for, uh, for a book. Um, but it, re- it really began, you asked when I got interested in it, uh, it was when I uh, started teaching at Stanford many years ago, back in the 1970s, uh, and uh, began uh, uh, teaching a seminar course on, on Frank Lloyd Wright, and 
we would uh, take field trips to uh, to some of his buildings in the Bay Area, uh, and that was when I began to realize that there were also uh, the projects that had not been constructed, and um, and that there were so many of them, and they were so interesting that. Uh, that I was surprised that no one had ever written a book on the subject, and so that's when it began. Uh, so I've been collecting information for many years, but it was when I retired um, several years ago that I that I decided that if I was ever going to write this book, I really had to start working on it seriously. So for the last four years, I'd say three three and a half or four years, I really was working full time on uh, on the book, but um, but it. The inspiration was really my my realization that there's so much material and that people just are not aware of how how important this Bay Area work uh, is and how interesting it is. Yeah, and the the bridge over the bay that you mentioned is it true that he was not in fact invited to design something like that? That he he took it upon himself to to come up with a design for. A bridge across the bay. Yeah, that's right. You're you're absolutely right about that. He was not commissioned to do it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> he uh, uh, and he did this uh, occasionally that he would just do a design that he um, uh, thought there was an opportunity to to do something he wanted to do uh, that he was hoping might might get constructed. Now there was talk about a um, a second uh, uh, bridge over the bay. The um, uh, there is the Bay Bridge, of course, uh, that goes from San Francisco to to Oakland. That was built in the late 1930s. Um, but uh, starting in the uh, after the Second World War, there was talk uh, about uh, the need for a for a second bridge because of increased traffic, and it was called the Southern Crossing. It was to be just to the south of the um, of the existing Bay Bridge. And the state was was considering uh, constructing it, and there were different plans and proposals of various kinds. Um, but and so Wright heard about this and um, and worked with a um, with an engineer uh, who lived in Berkeley, uh, who um, uh, who actually proposed uh, that the two of them work together on this bridge project. So Wright did it um, just on his own, just hoping that uh, the uh, the state of California could be talked into building it, and and and, um, and he and this man Joseph uh, Polivka uh, uh, promoted the bridge for for many years, but it uh, it never never did get built. And in fact, no, no bridge uh, of that uh, at that spot did did get uh, get built. It was um, in a sense it was uh, it was because of uh, Bart. Uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, uh, which uh, uh, decided to go under the under the bay as uh, as it does now, uh, that uh, really scuttled plans for a for a second bridge where Wright designed it. Right, which uh, he thought was a terrible idea. Which he thought was a terrible <laughs> idea, uh, because of course it uh, it, w- it went against his plans. It was it uh, kind of undermined his plans for his. Uh, butterfly bridge, as he called it, and so he uh, he would would have these interviews in San Francisco where he would talk about how dangerous an underground tunnel would be, or going under the bay that in an earthquake it would be devastating, and so forth. So he 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 kept um, uh, vigorously promoting.
promoting his plans for his uh, uh, very unusual reinforced concrete butterfly bridge. It would have been absolutely beautiful just as a sculptural work. It was a gorgeous uh, uh, design, completely different from any earlier uh, bridge or certainly any of the the uh, truss bridges or suspension bridges that are, are um, were commonly built at that time. Uh, really remarkable design that still still people find inspiring. And for for many years, um, uh, more recently, the uh, it's coming to the news again. For example, after the um, uh, earthquake of 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake in the Bay Area, when the when the Bay Bridge was uh, seriously damaged, part of it fell down, and they realized they needed to to rebuild it or build a new bridge for the uh, eastern span. The um, um, there were stories about um, about Wright's Butterfly Bridge, and some people were proposing that it be built, and so it still still inspires people and attracts a lot of attention. Yeah, one of his claims is that it would be earthquake proof. That's what he said. Whether that, <laughs> it's hard to hard to know. Um, but it was it was such an unusual design. This sculptural form in reinforced concrete that had this had this great sweep. It would have been the largest. The central part of it, the central span, would have been the largest uh, concrete span in the world at that time, I believe. And it and it, it divides in the center. And there's a a, a a park in the center that you can drive. Uh, drive into from the from the bridge. I mean, it was really a wild design, um, but a beautiful sculptural design. And at the time, a lot of engineers said, "Well, it's just uh, impractical. It's not structurally. It wouldn't wouldn't work structurally, and so forth." So that was one of the reasons I think it didn't get taken seriously. But then, um, in the um, after that Loma Prieta earthquake of '89, um, there were some interviews with um, with a. Um, with a noted bridge designer, T. Y. Lin, um, uh, a great structural a- engineer, and he, and he said that he had examined Wright's design and he thought it was practical, and he thought it would uh, that that uh, at least at this uh, at this time later in the in the uh, toward the end of the 20th century that uh, that it that it could be built and that it was uh, and it was feasible. So it's it's still controversial. People still talk about it and wonder whether it might get built sometime. And the drawings you include in the book are really stunningly beautiful. Yeah, they're beautiful drawings. Well, your archival research, reading tons of correspondence among other documents, allows you to piece together a lot of the stories about the bridge and the other Bay Area projects that went unbuilt. Um, and a feature of each of the stories in your book is a detailed explanation of the reason or reasons that the project wasn't completed. Um, what was your intent in including those explanations in particular? Right. Yeah, that, uh, that I decided was an important thing to try to do because uh, I, I realized that, that since uh, so many of these projects were not built, as I said, there were r- roughly 30 projects that he designed for the Bay Area, depending on how you count them. And, but only about a third of them were constructed. And so I knew that people would wonder, well, why were, the, why were so many of them not built? Now, in fact, it's not that unusual for, for architects to do projects that are not, not built. In fact, I have a couple of practicing uh, friends who are practicing architects 
who've told me when I've mentioned that that uh, only about a third of these Bay Area projects were built, and a couple of them said, well, that's not that unusual for, for many architects. But the fact is, I still knew that people would wonder, why were these projects not built? And... Um, and especially since there's that there there's that stereotype of Frank Lloyd Wright as being as as being difficult to deal with, and especially as kind of treating his clients badly. You often hear these stories about nasty things he says to his clients, or that he doesn't take their uh, their wishes in consideration. So I I realized that many people would assume, well, that's probably the reason why these unbuilt projects didn't get built. And, these Bay Area projects. So I wondered, well, how, how could I answer that question? How could I find out? And it re- I realized that I had to get access to the correspondence between Wright and the clients of all of these um, roughly 30 projects. And, and all of this correspondence, or nearly all of it, is in the um, Frank Lloyd Wright archives, which... Um, um, we're always at uh, at Taliesin West in uh, Arizona, but um, just a couple of years ago or three years ago, they were um, the the whole archive was moved to New York City and is now in the Avery Library at Columbia University. At least the uh, drawings and uh, and, and correspondence uh, uh, are are at the Avery Library. The three dimensional uh, objects like models are at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So the whole archive is in New York now, and I spent some time there uh, several years ago and um, and uh, found all of the correspondence uh, and then had to follow up with uh, ordering copies of it. There's so much of it, hundreds or maybe even thousands of, of letters and other documents relating to these uh, Bay Area projects. And... Um, as a result, I was able to examine each one of these commissions and 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 the relationship uh, between Wright and and all of these clients, uh, uh, mainly through this this correspondence, letters between Wright and the clients, plus other kinds of information on other sources, and 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 therefore I was able to really um, explain in each case why a project was or wasn't built and, 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 and in the case of the unbuilt projects, what the problem was. And, and I was actually somewhat surprised myself. I expected that there probably would be of a number of cases where it was clearly that Wright was just being, being difficult and treating his clients badly. But what I found was that that in almost none of the cases was that a factor. There were all uh, a wide variety of different kinds of reasons why these projects weren't uh, built. And I think this is actually one of the things that makes my book a little different from from most uh, books on Frank Lloyd Wright, which mainly tend to examine the buildings and the and the projects. Uh, unbuilt projects and describe the architecture and the sources and so forth, but but not say so much about the relationship of the client, especially with with unbuilt projects like this, and explain why they weren't built. So this, I think, is a um, this is a major theme in my in my book, and and what it shows is 
that that there's this wide variety of reasons that they weren't built. Now, many of them were financial reasons, as we might expect. Uh, and in and this is true, especially in Wright's case, because his designs were so unusual that uh, that often it was difficult or impossible at first to to estimate the the uh, construction costs. So the uh, so the um, uh, building costs would turn out to be much more than than anticipated. Uh, so that was that often was a, a reason. Another reason was sometimes that that his designs were so unusual that the client was just was reluctant to to accept the design. There are a few cases where there was some conflict between Wright and a and a client because he would produce a design for them that that they just thought was was too crazy and uh and uh in some cases he was willing to redesign it and give them something more like what they wanted but in some cases he liked the design so much that he he kept uh uh kept hoping that they would build it so um so that was sometimes re- there were other cases where it was the client that was being difficult. Cases, for example, where a client would simply refuse to um, pay uh, the fee for the preliminary drawings that, uh, that was necessary before a, uh, uh, a um, project could, uh, could proceed. Uh, and there, uh, there, were, there were also some uh, reasons uh, for unbuilt projects that were completely unexpected to me um, uh, quite amazing ones. There, one of them is uh, uh, it's quite remarkable. It's uh, uh, for a project uh, by a, a couple named Bush living in Palo Alto. Actually, he was a Stanford professor, and they were friends of the um, of the Hannas who built the Hanna House. Uh, Hannah, Paul Hanna was uh, a Stanford professor, and Robert Bush and his wife were friends of the Hannas. Um, the Hanna House had been built in the um, 1930s, and it was in 1950 that um, that this younger faculty member and his wife decided that they wanted to have Wright design a house, and they, and they met Wright uh, through they were introduced by the Hannas. And um, this is all documented in this correspondence, which I found, which I'm sure no one had, no scholar had ever looked at before, um, because these unbuilt houses are are virtually unknown, and almost no attention has been paid to them uh, previously. Um, so the uh, so the uh, the Bushes were met right, and were found him a very amiable person. Uh, they talk in their letters about how. Uh, what a delightful person he was, and they got along with him perfectly. So there was no personality problem there. And Wright designed a house for them. They loved the design of the house. And there seemed to be no financial problems, and they were all ready to build it. And then suddenly in the archive, there's a letter from Robert Bush to Wright, a very sad letter, saying, um, we're devastated. We've just learned that our daughter has contracted polio. Of course, this was in 1950, when that was every parent's nightmare was was uh, polio. And and he said she's uh, in uh, grave uh, condition and in a hospital in San Francisco, and uh, we're we're just not going to be able to 
to uh, proceed with our with the house plans uh, and we're so on so sad about that also and he said um uh, because of all the medical bills that we have we just we can't proceed with the um um with the house but he says i i i know that that we haven't paid you yet for your preliminary drawings and we'll pay them as as soon as we can so that's that letter then in the correspondence as i was going through it the the next letter from just a few days later is from from right uh, back to um to robert bush and he says uh, he expresses his concern for the daughter and he says forget about the fees so there's a completely unexpected reason for for one of Wright's projects not getting constructed. Yeah, the part of that letter you excerpt in the book is really quite touching and and somewhat unusual in the context of Wright's other letters about fees that he would... That's right, <laughs> and also, of course, uh, again, uh, in, in, in the context of this stereotype that he always treated his clients badly. Right. Yeah, so... Um, and, and I've got to say that, that going through this, all of this correspondence between Wright and his clients in the Taliesin archives really was one of the most gratifying part of of this whole research project uh, for me. Um, it was really, uh, in, in many cases, it was a kind of moving, moving experience uh, going through all of this correspondence uh, and uh, really getting a, a sense of, uh, of, the, of this relationship between Wright and and each of these uh, clients, um, uh, sometimes a really perfectly amiable relationship. Sometimes there were would be these problems, but uh, it just brought all of this to light in a way that uh, that um, I had never quite experienced before to actually see these original uh, original letters. And um, so that was really uh, for me that was, it was one of the uh, the most wonderful parts of this uh, of this project. It really has been a kind of labor of love for, for many years. Mm. You mentioned the Hannah House, which I think is the first <coughs> project of Frank Lloyd Wright's in the Bay Area that, that was constructed. It was designed in 1936 and constructed in 37, I think, which, as you mentioned, was a home for um, a young, at that time, young couple, Paul and Jean Hannah, who were both um, involved professionally in the study of early childhood education. And their specific goals for their home, which they communicated to Frank Lloyd Wright, um, were based on their vision of an ideal space for raising kids. Can you talk about how Wright responded to that and how his design achieved those goals? That's right. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting um, stories about about this house, which is really is clearly one of his most uh, interesting and important houses that he ever designed throughout his career, and he and he, re- he realized this. He Wright um, always considered the Hannah House to be one of his uh, favorite uh, projects. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the um, the Hannahs uh, asked Wright to um, to to design uh, their house uh, just after they um, uh, Hannah became named or joined the Stanford faculty in. Um, in 1935, then in, in 36, they asked him to uh, design the house, and it was designed mainly in 37, uh, if I got the exact dates right. And um, 
you're right that this was the, the, the first designed by Wright uh, in the Bay Area that was constructed, unless it's possible that that uh, that a very mysterious design that he did around 1900 for Oakland that whether that uh, no one knows whether that was built or not. That's a that's a kind of mystery project, which is the first the first uh, design that I describe in the in the book because so little is known about it. Right. But yes, the Hannah House is the first house that was constructed, as far as we know, and. The uh, Hannas, as you say, were uh, experts in childhood education. Paul Hanna uh, uh, taught uh, in the um, in the education school at Stanford, and that was their field. They wrote he and Gene wrote books on on childhood education, and so when they asked Wright to design the house for them, they they had some uh, specific suggestions. Of that Wright had never really thought about before, and um, and uh, but first I should mention that that Wright uh, decided that they would that they could be kind of guinea pigs for him, or that they would be a test case where and and that they might be the the first clients that he uh, could talk into building a type of of. Of house that he had been thinking about for a long time, but had never been able to find clients willing to build, and that is a a, a building whose floor plan is completely non-rectangular, um, uh, uh, and in the case of the Hannah House, it's completely based on hexagons. That's pr- that's the best known uh, thing about the about the Hannah House and what what makes it um, a kind of pioneering. Uh, design in, in his career, it was the first time he was able to talk a client into building a completely non-rectangular plan. And the reason that he wanted to do this, it went back earlier into, the say, the 1920s, when he started doing plans of breaking away from the from uh, rectangular uh, floor plans. And he wanted to do it as a as a kind of furtherance or carrying further his idea of 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 breaking out of the of the box, uh, uh, he he w- he would write about this that he wanted to um, to 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 break open the box of conventional architecture, and he had started doing that in in various ways with his prairie houses going back to the um, to the beginning of the of the twentieth century with. The, Open spaces, fluid spaces, kind of indoor/outdoor spaces. Um, so that was part of this idea of of creating more fluid um, uh, architecture. But he wanted to carry it farther, so that so that he would not even be using right angles. And he had never been able to find a client willing to do that until uh, he started working with the Hannas, and um, and they went along with that idea. So that that. They they were a little reluctant at first, and they were puzzled by 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 the whole notion of this very unusual plan based completely on hexagons. Uh, Wright connected it with uh, talked about uh, it being like the honeycomb, and so it's sometimes called the the honeycomb house. But um, uh, they but then the Hannas started making some suggestions of their own. Uh, and and one of them was uh, that they wanted a house that would 
that would fit their idea of how they should raise their children. And this included some uh, uh, somewhat unusual ideas. Uh, in particular, they said, we, uh, our three children, we want each of them to have a uh, separate bedroom. Uh, Wright at first, I think, had proposed a plan where the two boys would be in one bedroom and the girl would have another bedroom. They said, they said, no, each child has to have his or her separate bedroom, but we want the bedroom to be very small because we don't want them to, uh, to we, won't, we don't want to encourage them to spend a lot of time alone in their bedroom. We need a large playroom where they can work together and play together, but then they can retreat to their tiny bedroom when they want to. But we realized, and they said, we realize this is going to be a problem because if the house is designed like that, then when the children grow up and, and leave their house, how are we going to use this house that has these tiny little bedrooms and a big playroom? So they said, is there some way that you can solve this problem or that we can, so the house can be changed when the children grow up, grew up, and Wright had never been uh, faced with a proposal like this before, and you might have expected him again with the stereotype that he wasn't interested in the, in his client's wishes. You might have expected him to say, "Well, no, you just can't do it." Well, you know, we'll do it one way or another, but you can't have uh, change the house like this. And um, but he he. He clearly found it a stimulating idea, and 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 so he did it. And the and the Hannas later wrote. They said we were just astounded that he was able to solve this problem. And what he did was he designed a house that could evolve with the life of the family. And and so it starts out. It was the original plan and the way it was constructed in 1937 was to have these tiny children's bedrooms and. Um, and and a large playroom, but then the it, it's designed in such a way that that um, after the children uh, grew up, and this ha- and uh, this happened in the 1950s, they made this transition or this change. the The walls between the children's bedrooms could be removed; they weren't structural walls, and that part of the house became the the parents' master bedroom. And what had been their bedroom and a small office for them became a larger suite, uh, office suite where they w- wrote their their books together that they did uh, during these later years. And then the, the the large playroom became a large dining room because the original dining area was a smaller uh, area off of the in between the. Um, uh, the living room and the and the kitchen, and um, so the idea was that as they um, as they got older and the children left the family, they would be entertaining more and needed a larger dining room. So it all worked out, and it and that was the and that was what happened. The house was transformed in the 1950s, and when you visit the Hannah House now, which is um, which Stan- uh, Stanford University now owns, it's on the Stanford campus. And um, uh, the house is open for, for docent tours. And uh, so when you visit it now, the, you see the second incarnation or the transformed uh, plan of the house. But, this was, but it was all designed by Wright. 
uh, uh, as a house that would uh, evolve with the life of the family. And it was the first time, as far as I know, that one, that he um, that Wright did this, and it was because they asked for uh, asked him if this could somehow be done. It's a really remarkable story. Yeah, it's a fantastic solution to that problem. Yeah. Um, another story that is a, a different version of a house sort of evolving with a family is a home, another home that, that was built um, in San Anselmo, California. A client named Bob Berger got in touch with Frank Lloyd Wright um, with, a, with a somewhat unconventional request. Can you share that story? Yes. Yes, this is uh, an amazing story. Well, Bob Berger was a young um, a teacher. He had, uh, had been, um, his training was in um, engineering, uh, but, um, but he um, uh, taught at a, at a junior college in, um, in Marin County, and he had a, a wife and, um, and, and um, two children at that time. They eventually had four children. Um, and this was in, uh, about in 1950. And um, he had this dream that he uh, would, uh, uh, that Frank Lloyd Wright could design a, a house for him. But he didn't, he realized he didn't have enough money to, um, to, to build a, the kind of house he wanted. So he, came, he wrote to Wright and said, could you design a house that I would be able to build myself? He said, I have, I'm a teacher, I have uh, free summers, and um, I've never built a house before, but if you could design one that I can build myself, I'll just build, I'll, I'll be able to build a better, better house than I'd be able to uh, afford if it had to be built by a contractor. So Wright eventually, there was kind of a long story of how uh, Berger had to, uh, had to contact Wright several times, and he actually went to visit him in... Um, uh, at Taliesin in, in Wisconsin, and that's a fascinating story that Berger later told, and so I repeat that in the in the book. But eventually, Wright agreed to do this. So he uh, he produced a, a design for for Berger for this piece of property. Berger had the had the piece of property, a beautiful uh, site uh, in the um, in the hills uh, in Marin County, uh, right outside of San Anselmo, on a kind of rocky. Hill, hilltop. It's a gorgeous site, and and Wright designed a um, a house for him. The problem was that the design that Wright produced for him was not a design that's easy to build, um, and it's it's a little puzzling because at the same time uh, Wright uh, had was had produced a design for a type of house, a kind of prototype design that he called the Usonian Automatic. And it was and it was designed specifically with the idea that it could be built by that it would be easy to build uh, and could be built by the uh, the owner himself. And it had a rectangular plan and uh, had used uh, normally used con- concrete block. And it uh, was at least theoretically easy to build. So you would have expected that Wright would have given Bob Berger uh, one of these Usonian automatic designs, but he didn't. He gave him a, a completely different design that was actually difficult to build and included, first of all, it was non-rectangular, not hexagonal like the Hannah House, but based on a lozenge or a diamond-shaped module. And, but he, uh, so that 
makes it more complicated to build. But even more than that, the walls and all the uh, all the retaining walls and all of the walls of the house are of a, uh, a type of construction that Wright called um, desert masonry or des- desert rubble stone masonry, which uh, he had been had been used uh, first in a major way at uh, Taliesin West in Arizona in the 1930s, Wright's um, Arizona home and studio, and um, uh, in, involves building uh, uh, forms that uh, for the concrete to be poured in, but before the concrete is poured, the large stones have to be positioned in the, in the forms. First of all, the stones have to be cut so that they can, or split so that they have more or less flat surfaces, then they're placed in these forms. Concrete is poured. When the forms are removed, you have uh, heavy concrete walls that have stones that are visible on the surface of the wall. It was really a new technique that Wright had, had developed, had very beautiful type, types of walls. But it's hardly easy to, uh, not exactly easy to build by any means. And But Bob Berger loved the design, and he started building it, and he soon realized it was going to take him much longer than he thought, and he ended up spending 20 years, really the rest of his life, um, before he died uh, prematurely. Um, he um, So he spent uh, uh, roughly 20 years building this uh, this house, but um, so it's an amazing story, certainly the, 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 the longest construction job, I'm sure, of any Frank Lloyd Wright building. But um, but Bob Berger never complained. According to his children, I've interviewed his children, and uh, they they had gave me interesting information and also gave me photographs of uh, of of their father building the house. It was quite well documented by the family with photographs over this long period of time. So I illustrate a number of these photographs in the uh, in the book, and he. Apparently never complained, and he loved the house. He talked about how it, he just adored the, the the house. That he said it almost had a kind of mystical or religious meaning for him. And so that's uh, maybe the story of the most dedicated uh, work by a client of of, of rights on, on one of these houses. That seems likely. What one wonders almost if, based on the correspondence and the opportunity that they had to meet in person if Wright somehow um, had some intuition that that Bob Berger was up for that kind of challenge and so didn't adapt one of his Usonian automatic designs for him but instead gave him um, something more difficult. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. No, I, I did wonder about, you know, well, why did Wright do this? And I think that that may have been part of the reason. But, I, but the other reason... I think is that he 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 considered that the that the site was not appropriate to the one of his Usonian automatic designs, which are uh, are designed mainly for flat sites and the way they're constructed, and they just work better on a flat site. And um, and I I think uh, the main reason that he that he came up with this design was that he thought it was the right design for for this rocky hillside site uh, that uh, that Berger had um, with rocky outcroppings and everything and so this 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 desert masonry 
construction just and it is it's an absolutely gorgeous house i mean it's one of bright's most beautiful houses in terms of of its relationship with the site it's a wonderful wonderful building and um so i think he he thought that that the site really demanded a different type of uh uh, and more dramatic kind of structure than a even an automatic. But I think you're right that he also must have felt that that uh, that Berger was up to the task. But it, um, but it, uh, but Berger himself had no. I didn't realize until he got into it what was how how difficult it was going to be. Yeah, it is an amazing story. Yeah, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing these stories. Well, it's been a pleasure. The book is Frank Lloyd Wright and San Francisco by Paul V. Turner. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.